Let's start with your appearance, a red herring for your merits. I'm embarrassed by the lyrics that you parrot, so generic I can't bear it. But my fear is if you're garish and you're clearly standing near us, they'll compare us. When your fam is perseverance, so unfair if you don't cherish having clearance, just a stretching from your pharynx. I make heretics of clerics in your parish. Brandishing my larynx like the fairest hand of ferrets. I'm the whalers, you're the sheriff. Bars. Um, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Baleko Aziza Wisa, here with my cousin, Patrick Delabanza. Yes, and Julian, our third member, he's in um, Congo right now. He's selling Nikate right now on the strip. Um, so today we have a very, first of all, yeah, this is the podcast where we highlight Congolese talent and Black and African talent around the diaspora. But today we got a real special guest. As you can see, she has bars. Let me give you a real nice, real nice intro. The professions and accomplishments of today's guests are too numerous to list. Just to name a few, she's a rap artist, bars, producer, podcaster, video game developer. Wait, what? And most recently, a PhD. She has a PhD in science and technology studies from Cornell University. Whether it's her teaching courses at Brown University in rap songwriting and feminist sound studies, or it's her writing, producing, recording a new track slash album to add to her large music catalog, her story as an artist puts her at the intersections of academia and Afrofuturism. That's very interesting. Indeed, her work has led to performances and speaking engagements at a range of conferences, conventions, festivals, and campus events about her experiences as a hip hop artist, black feminist, Afrofuturistic, futuristic, thank you, thinker, and artist academic. From Comedy Central to South by Southwest, she brings together a diverse array of activism, hip-hop heads, punks, and self-identified nerds and geeks, among others. Today, she joins us to discuss the Indiegogo campaign for The Keeper, which is the first and most uh, comprehensive digital resource dedicated to five decades of women and girls' artistry within hip-hop music and culture. It is our pleasure to welcome the podcast, Samus. Hey! <laughs> right, thanks, Samus. Thanks for being here. Of um, course. You know, I said this off camera, but I, I said this was the first question. What's the story behind your rap name? Yeah, so for anyone who is a gamer of a certain age, you will have heard of the game Metroid. Um, and so Metroid came out on the Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we had a, a Nintendo in my household and my older brother, he used to trade Nintendo cartridges with friends, with homies. And so one day we got Metroid. And so we were playing this game. And the main character, for folks who don't know, is in this armor suit. And Metroids are kind of like parasites that are floating around and trying to absorb your, your life energy. Right. And so the main character is blasting off these, these, these Metroids and is in search of the boss of the game, which is this giant brain. And after you destroy the boss of the game, the armor suit comes off and you learn that this character is this powerful woman named Samus. And, you know, I think now we're starting to have conversations about representation that we weren't having when Nintendo first had Metroid kind of released. So to see this woman character as a kid, it was like, what, whoa, like the whole time it was her. Right. Um, when I grew up and I started like making beats, I remember that I would receive, people would be confused about me being the person making the beats. And so I felt this affinity to Samus because it felt like I was having this big reveal in the same way that she did at the end of the game. And also because I love video games. So it felt like a good, a good fit. First of all, it's interesting because I never played Metro, so I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, more people, I think, now know Metroid, or now know Samus through Smash Bros. That they, they're, like, that's how she's more pop, popularly right. understood, known. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know Samus was, a, I didn't know that Metroid was a girl. Yeah, Samus was a, she's, it was a, a, a like, the reveal scene around the world or heard around the world at that time, it was really surprising. Like there weren't many playable women characters. You know, if you were gonna be a woman in a game, it's like you're Chun-Li or, you know. Princess, Princess Toad, that's all I'm thinking of. Right, right. Yeah. There were very few spaces for women to exist as central players and as the people who were kind of uh, like the main character, the focal point. Even with the princess, she's in relation to Mario, right? So it's like, Samus was a character who got to stood on stand on her own and um, yeah, just be like the bomb. Yeah, because like every video game at that era, the woman's being saved. She doesn't right. participate in the adventure. She's just being saved. She's just being saved or taking a back seat. Um, so, no, it's funny. I'm yeah. thinking of Final Fantasy. All of these games, like they're that whole time. Like Tifa's being saved. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, you, and I think you know, again, we're having conversations now about um, representation, but as a kid, I was thinking a lot about this too. It was always like, you know, who can I be? Like when you're playing a game or when you're watching a cartoon or watching a movie, it's like you place yourself in that space. And when you can right. never find the place to put yourself, you you notice it. Yeah, I mean, look at what just happened this past weekend. How many, how many mm -hmm. parents had to sit down with, black parents had to sit down with their kids and tell them Black Panther passed. Think, mm. like, think, like, think about this, right? Yeah. Like, Black Panther's not real. It's not a real game. Like, it's not. It's not right. real. It's based off of Congo, but that's a whole other conversation or whatever, right? But there's right. Black that are like, how do I sit down and tell my child that T'Challa passed away? It's it's huge. It shows you that in, that importance, that value. Representation changes lives. It it creates new spaces for people. Like, yeah. it's it's a real phenomenon. Right. Right. Um, I'm glad, go ahead, Pat. I'm, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you start, you know, obviously you started talking about your producing, but just wondering, were there any influences? Like, who influenced you in terms of producing? Yeah. So, I started, I like started to think about wanting to make music when I first played Sonic the Hedgehog on <laughs> Sega, Sega Genesis. That soundtrack, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, to be, to be precise, it was really, um, I, 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 remember being excited by the complexity of the music. Like in that moment when I was listening to it, I was like, these are video game songs, you know, but these are really thoughtfully constructed works of music, you know, like they're, they're funky. Like there's, yeah. you know, there's really something going on here. So I kind of fell in love with that music and decided, oh, I want to make music for a video game when I grow up, or I want to make a video game when I grow up. Uh, but I didn't know how to program. I didn't know how you made a video game. I didn't know, you know, how to animate. I did, however, have a relationship with music because my older brother, he's a self-taught guitarist and he he was taking music piano classes at that time. So he taught me some basic music theory and I was able to kind of like play out the stuff that I wanted to hear. Um, and, but it wasn't until like in high school when I started making beats on the computer. And at that point I was listening to like all kinds of stuff. I was listening to Most Def, I was listening to Bjork, I was listening to Radiohead. Like I grew up in, in upstate New York in Ithaca. So it was, mm. you know, at that point the internet wasn't super huge. So I was listening to whatever was on TV and whatever my older brother had access to. Um, mm. yeah, yeah, sounds about right. 
<laughs> do, do you think um, having this this African background, I've always realized when I was younger, even us growing up here in LA, my choice of music was always so grand, like it was so vast compared to my friends. Cause I was like, well, I grew up where I would listen to uh, Papa Wimba, but then mm -hmm. I hear Tupac, mm -hmm. but then I listen to Celia Cruz and Miles Davis. So when music to me is so, yeah. it's so like vast, do you think that played that played a part? Like how you listen to, um, you gravitated towards like, you can notice like, oh, in Sonic, the music is good. Yeah, I definitely think it, it created an expansive thinking for me around music because my, you know, in my household, we were listening to everything. Um, and when we would go on car trips, like my parents, they always had cassettes, like all kinds of cassettes from various stops on the on the continent. And so we would just be listening to this artist, that artist. And I remember they also would have like VHSs of music videos that we would yeah. kind of watch together um, of, of different artists from across the continent. So yeah, it felt like growing up, there wasn't really, like I didn't feel like I was beholden to one type of music or the other. Like right, right, really, right. like I can listen to whatever I want to listen to, which I, I really value a lot because it means that you can be influenced anywhere. Like I don't have to go anyone, I don't feel compelled to draw from any one source. And I know that a part of that is just my upbringing you know, you're pulling from everywhere to make sense of the place when when you grow up in that household. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, Patrick, before you go on, it's funny you say about Sonic 2, you know that I have I have music from Tekken 2, I have oh. music from Sonic CD like on my playlist. Like I like oh, listen wow. to it, I'm like, good music. Right, right, right. That's so, great. Yeah. Go ahead, Pat. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously you were in producing, so how'd you get into rapping though? So rapping came later for me. So in terms of production, I was making kind of video game, like inflected beats in high school. And then I start. I decided I wanted to make hip hop beats when I heard Kanye West for the first time. Um, like hearing him really, I, I remember the video for Through the Wire was on TV and I turned around, I was like, who is this? Like, I need to investigate who this is because I just was like, he's rapping about being in a car accident and like, like what is this? Sure. So hearing him kind of be really vulnerable or speak about his experience, it made me realize, you know, I was just about to go into college when college dropout came out. Sure. So for me, it was really powerful to hear an artist wrestling with that as I was wrestling with like, who do, who do I want to be and what does college mean and what does education and, and success look like for me when I feel more akin to like a creative, but that doesn't look like a path that exists in this, in this yeah. specific space. So at that point, I was just making kind of hip hop, you know, infused beats, like sample based beats. But I started rapping after I graduated from, from college. I moved to Houston, Texas, where I was a, um, a teacher in Teach for America. Mm -hmm. And basically in that moment, I was really depressed about the state of education, public education in this country. And I found that like rapping about <laughs> being a nerd was like a way that I could, rapping about my identities was a way that I could kind of express the frustration that I was feeling or like have some kind of therapy. Um, and the, the, the last piece of that is that I wanted to bring my raps about being a nerd to my students so that they would feel like <laughs> it was cool to listen to me basically, which I was too scared to show to them. But um, that definitely pushed me in the direction of wanting to rap. Okay. 
Um, so from your first album in 2010, Fly Nerd, right, to the present, mm -hmm. I believe you released at least 10 projects, which is amazing. Um, however, I heard you say in an interview that your most recent project, um, Pieces in Space, in 2016, mm -hmm. you finally found your musical voice. Like, mm -hmm. what, what was that six-year journey like? And can you explain finding your voice? Yeah, so I think in terms of finding my voice, like when you listen to my older stuff, it's I've described it as like bad Kanye cosplay because I was just trying to, you know, be emphatic like he is and, and come up with punchlines like he would. I was really trying to, like I wasn't allowing myself to shine through because I thought I could just pull from him and, and kind of map myself out through his identity. So it, it took a minute of figuring out how I like to play with words. Like, what is my relationship to words? Or what, it, what is my relationship to my subject matter? Like, I heard somebody once say that every artist has a question that they're asking throughout their whole career, right? Mm -hmm. Or that they, that they return to. Or some, some, there's something yearning, some kind of yearning inside of you that's driven by a particular, like, fascination. And I think one of the things that my music I've realized is important to me is how, how we navigate life in the 21st century through screens and like, how are we connected and how are we disconnected? I think that's the, the to me, the most fundamental part of my journey as an artist is figuring out what it means to be connected in this moment and what it means to be disconnected. And I think once I realized that that was what I care about, it's enabled me to write in a different way. Like it's enabled me to to focus my writing a little bit more because I know that that's what I care about. And so it 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 comes out of my songs a little bit, especially as I'm writing new things. I feel like now that I know that's the question I want to ask or the thing that I'm fascinated by, it uh, it allows me to just be focused. Okay. Um, I think we do have a question about um, who influenced you, but we'll I'll wait till later. Go ahead, Pat. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, I know in terms of genre, like, you know, when I look and see very often you get, your music gets called nerdcore, yeah. but I've seen you in interviews and stuff like that, bristle against that, say, no, it's more Afrofuturistic. So yeah. if you could, can you talk about like why it's important for you to make that distinction? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. I mean, I think there's two, two threats to that. The first is. So for those who aren't familiar, nerdcore is kind of is a term that was developed by the MC, MC Front a lot um, in 2008, I believe, to categorize kind of his like very nerdy, geeky raps. And there were other folks around that time who were also kind of using hip hop as a way to express their geeky, nerdy identity, which, you know, for... Um, in terms of the popular or the, the mainstream face of hip hop, it seems like, oh, that's that's an inversion of what's important in hip hop. Although there have always been geeks and nerds in hip hop expressing their relationship to geek and nerd culture. Um, but that's, that's another story for another day. But basically this term has, um, has found a lot of favor with a lot of folks. So when there are artists who rap a lot about video games or cartoons or particular, you know, pieces of pop culture, they're often called nerdcore, like if they lean into that a little bit. So the fact that I rap a lot about video games, I talk, my name comes from a video game, my references are very sort of layered in particular nerd and geek pop culture. I talk about like The Simpsons a lot and, and other sorts of things that folks who are tuned into pop culture would, would relate to. 
it started to be called nerdcore music, basically. And I wasn't the one who said that. So I felt some frustration there because it was like, I have people labeling me in a particular way that I never even had a chance to figure out what I do, you know, who I am and who I want to be. Um, and so I wanted to, I bristled at the term just for that alone. But the other part of it is that in terms of the politics of nerdcore, you know, many of the artists who have risen to prominence are white men, right? Are white dudes who have a, an interesting relationship with hip hop iconography. And sometimes it's not clear to me whether there's a mockery there or there's a celebration there, or, you know, it's, it's complicated. And so to me, Afrofuturism was a much more, um, uh, was a term that better encapsulated what I was trying to do because it has to do with this like aesthetic and political movement around black people existing in spaces that we were told we were never supposed to exist in. So future spaces, video game spaces, virtual spaces. Um, but it has a very specific relationship to blackness and black identity. Um, black Panther is is known as kind of Afro, an Afrofuturist figure. Um, so I, I liked Afrofuturism because it was rooted in black identity and nerdcore is a more kind of broad, broad term than that. Uh, when I hear the word nerdcore, first of all, great explanation. When I hear the word nerd, um, nerdcore, to me, it feels like a way of having black talent like yourself, disassociate yourself from mm -hmm. black rappers. Mm -hmm. So it's like, no, no, they're like us. They're not like right, that. Right, it's like, right. Like you can be, we're all different. Like we're all different shades. We all like different things. Like, yeah. I'm trying to think like, Patrick, you know, Keenan, my, one of my best friends, he, he has an anime podcast. It's just all black dudes talking about anime. Like they talk about anime. Like it was like, like basketball. Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean? Like, so I, that, I don't know. I hate that nerve core. It's a way to like, to disassociate yourself from your African or black self that bothers and I mean, I'll say that there are artists who have repurposed that term who, you know, black artists who call themselves, who proudly are like, I'm a nerdcore artist. And this is what I'm making is hip hop that is unapologetic, unapologetically black. And I'm, I'm really excited for those artists. But I think for me, it just, yeah, I, I felt more of a relationship with Afrofuturism as a term. And I think you're right that there is this dynamic often within geek music spaces where there's a desire to separate the MCs there from the rest of MCing, as though it doesn't take talent or skill, as though it's not intelligent, right. as it you know, as though it's not laden with geek and nerd references. Like I, I, I resist that at every step. So I'm thank you for calling attention to that. Remember when yeah. they do that with they used to say conscious rap. Remember? Yeah. Right. Like, they're all conscious. What are you talking about? You know what conscious right. means? <laughs> Everybody's conscious. Yeah. So. <laughs> Go ahead, Pat. <laughs> yeah, but I would just like throw on top of it. It does also, I think, speak to like nerd courts, the idea of who do we consider a nerd in mm -hmm. culture? Because there's black nerds. I'm a black nerd. You're a black yeah. nerd. Like there's black nerds, but the default is that if you hear a nerd, it clearly ain't. Mm -hmm. It's clearly, mm -hmm. you know, and it does say something that the guy who came up with it, I mean, he's, he's a white guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, you can't help what catches on or what becomes the, mm -hmm. the branding. But yeah, it's, yeah, no, I definitely understand where you're coming from, for sure. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, in some ways, I feel like that's how some Black artists are working with the term nerdcore, or working within these spaces to try to 
like reimagine what what the identity of who we think of as being a nerd or being a geek. So I think we're all like wrestling with these wrestling against the stereotypes, like wrestling against whatever those stereotypes might be that at every turn we're having to try to kind of defend ourselves or define ourselves in relation to or against those stereotypes. Yeah, you just just exist. You, how about that? You have the right to just exist. You say yeah. like what you like, it doesn't. That's oh. right. What about this? What are some of the challenges you experience as a woman in hip hop? I can't wait to get to this question. So, I mean, I think that the the challenges there are the challenges that women face in a lot of different spaces where it's, you know, everything from people doubting your ability uh-huh. to um, sexualizing you where you didn't ask to be sexualized to, um, to yeah, to always kind of challenging you to, um, to outright kind of denying you opportunities. Um, so I feel like it's, it's been, I've been lucky and that I've surrounded myself with a lot of wonderful, um, oh, I see the comment. I'm a proud black nerd too. Hey. <laughs> um, but I've surrounded myself with a lot of wonderful, you know, men, women, non-binary folks who are supportive of the work that I'm doing, but it took a long time to find my community. And, you know, I often, I would feel like I would have to perform 10 times better than the men around me in order to even be on a roster. So I had a number of experiences where like I was the opening act and I knew I was better than the head, than the headliner. I knew I was better than the other people on the bill, but it was like, I couldn't be seen or I wasn't seen my value in the space wasn't understood. And that was really frustrating for me coming up because I spend so much time thinking about, performance and lyricism and how I put a song together. And then, you know, I do my thing and then somebody comes up there, no care, no concern in the world, gives like the worst performance I've ever seen in my life. And it's like in that moment, I'm realizing the barriers, like the glass, the glass ceiling basically that exists. Um, Shout out to my friend Kadesh Flo, who has a song about that particular thing. Um, But yeah, so I think that for me has been one of the biggest challenges. And I think the other challenge is that, you know, often in music spaces, there's the perception in music spaces or any kind of competitive arena, there's always this perception that there can only be one woman, right? There can only that, that, and we've seen this play out in a number of different ways where the media will will create beefs or unnecessary drama or um, will will position women against each other Easy. in ways that don't make any sense. And so it, it's- Black women, let's be specific. Black, black women, yes, black women. And it's, it's extremely frustrating because, you know, the reality of it is that I can listen to all of these different women and enjoy all of the different things that they bring, but our complexity is not legible to mainstream media. So instead it's like, okay, well, we're just gonna position these two people as, you know, um, in some kind of quote unquote cat fight. So it's it's really, it's frustrating to see, to see the reductive way that that media and folks kind of engage with women more broadly. Well, it's interesting. We have to realize like the root of um, anything in art is the comes stems from the root of this country. Like it's a billion dollar industry to have black people be chaotic, right? To fight amongst each other, right? So when you get into music, especially in uh, with women, 
mm-hmm. or whatever. In rap specifically, or whatever, they always do that where they can only be one. That's why whenever mm-hmm. you hear like in sports, the GOAT conversation, there can only be one black, only one black person can be great. No, they mm-hmm. all can be great. Like, you right, know, like, right. like, why can't LeBron and Kareem be great? They're great. Like, why can't, mm-hmm. you know, and especially it, it sucks in music that a mm-hmm. lot of artists don't see it and the fans, um, they feed this to fans where they can only be one. But every right. time we get to like, what do you think about the history of rap? And this is the problem. A lot of consumers, and I don't know if it's our fault, our fault as being older or like the media fault, we don't respect history. Because mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell you the truth, who's better than Lord? Like when you listen to Lord Hill 1997, 96, there's a lot of dudes that can't get on a track with Lord Hill, man. There's mm-hmm. a lot of like, who, like Patrick on the Fugees, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Lord verses are always the best. And right. then, then she could sing. Like what? Yeah. You know what yeah. I'm so, so she'll give you a hot 16 without cursing and being sexual, mm-hmm. right? And then I'm gonna sing the chorus too. Right, which yeah. I, I don't think there's a, a problem with being sexual, but I do think that it's something to be said for her to have risen to this level of prominence without kind of engaging with the oh. predominant narrative about what, what women in rap have to sell or have to do or have to be. Let me tell you something, when I saw Lord Hill on uh what's that on the apollo and she was damn near freestyle i said this is incredible she's a genius yeah she's absolutely a genius and it's 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 also frustrating because i think something that this um that this uh, archival project will reveal is that i'm sure there were a number of women who were also doing dope stuff that we just don't even haven't even kind of scratched the surface of like you know in in this moment I'm really excited about the number of women who have been able to have visibility through, you know, access to Bandcamp or SoundCloud or just kind of a cultural shift in what we think of and what we value. But it really makes you think, okay, well, now that that's happening right now, who was lost to history? Who was never given that opportunity? Who was, you know, because they didn't um, fit a particular image? who was never sort of allowed to even enter into the space. And that's that's kind of heartbreaking. Wow, it's interesting, because I'm thinking about the history, like you have like uh, Roxanne Roxanne, you mm-hmm. have, uh, I think about Queen Latifah, MC Light, mm-hmm. you, know, you have Lauren Hill, you think about- The Brat. Let me, the Brat, let me say who's my favorite, Lady uh, Lady Bug Mecca from Dig, uh, Digital um, Diggable Planet, yeah. one of my favorites, right? Her, yeah. you know, and I'm trying to think, I mean, it's funny, even, um, what's her name from Death Row? Afro, Lady of Rage. Oh, Lady, yeah. Lady of Rage, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, you know, now you have Meg Thee Stallion, you have Cardi B, you know what I mean? Like, it's amazing because we don't highlight enough, like, of the women and their contributions in, in, in rap. But I think there's, like, there's, like, deeper snuff or whatever mm-hmm. in hip-hop. But a lot of people, they don't do their research on, like, female MCs because now you just think about, like, oh, her, her body, her, her shape, but it's like, no, listen to what she's actually saying. She can actually rap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always been, I think, a, a challenge. And that's another thing that the, that the archive, I think, will examine. And that um, in my kind of relationship with Akua Naru, who's the, the brainchild behind the Keeper Digital Archive, is she she's talked a lot about how history, you were saying people don't engage with their history and that's the reality. Like even this conversation about WAP, like these conversations, have, we've had these conversations already. We've had these conversations for, you know, when when women in, in the blues were singing about like no. sexuality, you know? So this is this is a, a 
decades long conversation that never seems to come to a conclusion or never seems to come to a close or elevate. And so part of it's it's really important, I think, for folks to be more connected with the histories of conversations that have taken place so that we can advance or move the narrative beyond a certain place. And part of that will involve, like you said, showcasing, highlighting the diversity of women who have existed in rap over the past, you know, 50 years. Right, right. I'm Missy, I forgot about Missy. How do you forget Missy? Of course. I mean, uh, well, it's funny. Did Missy influence you? Because, you know, Afrofuistic, like Missy was so ahead of the curve. Yes, was. Like, you know, like that first video, um, what's called, um, so what was it, Super Duper Fly, that first album where she's yeah. like, she was so free. And it was just like, yo, she's yeah. dope. Yeah, know? and Sock It To Me in that video, she's like, looks like Mega Man. She's got like a Mega Man, yeah. you yeah. know, kind of contract her and the brat. Like, yeah, I absolutely, I think seeing this this woman who was able to move in and out of whatever spaces she want, like you said, she's, she's free. She's free, right. and you don't see that very often. Um, so it was powerful seeing her on my screen. Like, it, it definitely awakened something in me. All right, all right. So, Pat, go ahead. I'm sorry, brother. Oh, you're muted. You're muted. You're muted. I can hear you. You're muted. Oh, no, you're muted. Oh, he's done. Oh, I think he got COVID. Can't hear you. You got COVID. Oh, no. <laughs> Sam the mic has a little cross through it. Yeah, your mic has a cross. Your mic has the cross. <laughs> can y'all hear me now? Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay, perfect. sorry. Give me more. Sorry. Internet uh, is tripping. Internet oh, is tripping. Yeah, I saw that one kind of forever. Look, you can. I yeah, review yeah. tech glitches in the name of Chala. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but any, yeah. But uh, so you've you've already touched on it already. You were getting into it with the keeper, the archive. So just mm -hmm. wondering, um, you know, obviously we know there's gender disparity as you've touched on. One like. On the, the page, you know, for the Indiegogo campaign, one statistic I wanted to like quote. So it says, as of August 2020, only seven women rap artists have achieved a number one single on the Billboard charts. And of those, only three have done so without featured artists, which I was just like, damn, I'm like, is that true? But then I thought about it, I was like, well, actually, probably. Right. Probably. Yeah, these are I think, digits, right? Yeah, because I think what Drake, what was it last year that he passed Jay Z as a rap mm -hmm. artist with the most uh, number one? Uh, singles mm -hmm. in the Hot 100, and even then, that's like more than 20. I think he has. Yeah. So it's like, and I I don't know if there's any. Are there any women that have that many or close to that? Not so, that I know. Yeah. yeah. It's. I think again, going back to the the value of the archive is, it's one thing to kind of have these conversations with friends, you know, or make these observations on Twitter or wherever. But it's another thing to kind of see the reality of the numbers in front of you, like to really grapple with those things, right? The, that we're talking about single digit <laughs> numbers for the achievements of women in this art form that's existed for half a century. Like that's yeah. so minimal when we think about it. And one of the things that Akua says that I love so much is that, you know, Black women have never been small, have never been small. And so this idea that we haven't had work that is you know, um, that is worth being rewarded or worth being acknowledged is completely ludicrous. So something else is at play here when we only, when we see these very small numbers of women being able to exist in this kind of stratified airspace. Um, and I mean, there's, there's issues with what billboard means or what billboard rewards, yeah. 
know, yeah. or, or any of the, you know, Oscars, Grammys, et cetera, et cetera, any of these kind of institutional kind of systems of rewarding folks, right. but they matter. They have significant effects on the material circumstances of people's right. lives. So, right, their career. So if you have no ability to get into that place, you're locked out or you're not seen as being valid, That's that has real effects on the rest of the, the how the industry looks and sounds. Okay. How do you feel? And, uh, I guess, how do you how do you feel when um like playing devil's advocate somebody says the reason why it's hard for a female MC is because rap is hyper masculine like it's a masculine like sport like rap is very aggressive or at least used to be I don't know how do you feel when somebody would say that or if they say if they think that they're like well it's a man's sport it's you know it's it comes from like mm. uh, hyper testosterone how do you feel when you when somebody would say that or think that. Well, I think that that's somebody who's not necessarily hasn't done their research and hasn't isn't familiar with kind of broader histories of how music and sound transform. So there's two two texts that I would recommend to that person. <clears throat> the first is uh, "Rap Music and Street Consciousness" by Cheryl Keys, and it's it's kind of a, a musicological work of it examines. Um, Oh, we got a, a, a question from Akua Nara. Oh, he said, oh no, she, uh, this is a comment. We'll, we'll a get comment. back to that. It's not a question, a comment. Um, but this text kind of traces the, the linguistic and musical influences of hip hop. And they're wide ranging. There are so many different forces that find their ways into what we think of as hip hop. So this idea that it can be like whittles down to this one particular form of expression within hip hop is, mm -hmm. is ludicrous. But also there's a text that is available through our um, campaign called The Games Black Girls Play that makes the case that there are, uh, there's a lineage to be found of hip hop um, forms of expression through some of the hand clapping games and double Dutch rhythms and patterns that emerge from black black women and girls. Um, and so again, I think that there it's a very limited perspective to think that this one strain or this one kind of the the front facing view of a lot of mainstream hip hop is the only iteration of it. I mean, we know just as an independent artist, um, you know, the different ways that I've seen rap expressed, it's incredible. All of the different ways that, that I've seen people be able to engage with this art form, there's no way that, that anyone who could see all of these artists perform could say that this is the one, that this is inherent to what hip hop is. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, and I just want to kind of get into like the nitty gritty of it for the folks mm -hmm. who are wondering. So obviously with the archive, so like with all these issues, with the erasure, with the marginalization of women in hip hop culture, what, I guess, how does the keeper or what's the point, how specifically will the keeper address those issues? How will it combat those issues? So, I mean, the, the we talked about representation earlier, right? And the power of representation. So I think one of the important innovations of this archive is to simply recover and document the stories of women from their, as told, from their perspectives um, who have existed within this art form. And that's not just MCs or producers, that's also dancers, intellectuals, um, filmmakers. There's so many women who are connected to this art form. Um, <clears throat> I, think female I, I think female DJs, they get overlooked too. There's a lot. Cinderella. Well. Yeah, 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 uh, of course. And we know, you know, I'm, a, I'm coming from a, the 
background of being an, an elementary school educator, how important education is for shaping outcomes. What we know of our past, like thinking of Afrofuturism, our, our relationship to our past informs our present, right? Informs our future. And so if we're disconnected with the women who existed in this art space, that's how you get the understanding that hip hop is hyper-masculine, right? Because you have completely erased this relationship between all of these women who have existed. So again, just in terms of the, um, like the concrete, relationship to numbers, if you're able to engage with this archive and see all of the, the vast variety of women who have existed in this art form, that destroys this narrative, this singular story about hip hop it kind of emerging in one way and being the intrinsic art form of men who express themselves in a hyper-masculine way, just by virtue of the data that's in front of you. Um, and I think that that's to me, that's a huge innovation because this hasn't, you know, there's bits and pieces, there's histories that have been written, there's personal testimonies and accounts, but as far as there being a centralized place for all of this information to live that's publicly available and free, I think that is something that is, you know, on a level that hasn't been seen before. Okay. And just wondering, because obviously looking on the site, so the public education part, but the data activism, and you've just said it, free and available. The, yeah. If you could talk a little bit about this data a activism concept, because I'll be honest, I had never heard of it until I actually looked at the, the NGO yeah. campaign. Well, I'm glad that, that you were activated by that term. So that's a term that I, I pulled from an, an organization called Data for Black Lives. And essentially, this they, they've called attention to the importance of data in helping us to understand our um, social conditions and to... Um, destroy myths about ourselves as Black folks. So, you know, it's basically taking from the tradition of sociology where we say, let's look at these issues in terms of society and what society allows and enables, rather than thinking about issues within the Black community as, you know, biological or inherent or um, pathological. Instead, let's look at the systems of power that are around that enable or in you know, allow for our um, our communities to exist in particular ways. So the the conceit behind data activism is that if we um, do the work, do the research work of collecting the data about these women, right? About who existed, when, where, what were they doing, who else was around, that will have a more full understanding, not just of hip hop, but of a, a more more full understanding historically of what was going on in that space. And that traditionally, a lot of those marginalized voices have not been able to exist within data. So we've not been able to exist within um, the, like the annals of history. So we're recovering, we're bringing people into these present day discussions who you know, have for the better part of the, the century or better part of the past few years disappeared or been disappeared. Um, and I think that that's really important work that, again, hasn't hasn't really been done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting because like when you do like history, if somebody does history just on your own favorite rapper and you'll mm -hmm. see like how many different like female, whether it's a manager, a DJ, an MC has helped them out. Like my favorite rapper of all time is Tupac. Mm -hmm. And his first manager was a woman that was that hooked him up with Digital Underground. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Nobody talked about this. Right. And I think that's a really important point also in terms of helping us to expand our definitions of what counts as contributing to the culture, right? Because I think that, that 
beyond just looking at hip hop, when you look at histories of other musical scenes, there are all of these women who are propping up artists who are doing work to make the scene a scene, to make the space a space with directly with artists, but also indirectly through childcare, through all of these other um, important necessary functions that are completely unrewarded and unnoticed. So I think that that this this archival um, work will also help to create a more expansive understanding of how we build a culture, of how, of how we acknowledge all of the folks who contribute to making a culture what it is. I want to talk about culture a little later. Go ahead, go ahead Pat. Oh, is it me? Oh, okay. So how did this idea of, well, Pat, did you just say number seven? I think you did, right? I think, well, I said number six, but she, I think we've started to like answer a lot of number seven already. Oh, okay. uh, the second part, like her role. I think that that that's the question. Yeah. So, Samus, how how did you become a part of it, and what is your role? Yeah. So, Akua Naru, she's really brilliant um, as an MC, as a thinker, as a producer. I encourage everybody on this who's listening to listen to her music. Um, but she she had been working on this project for two years um, and was developing this idea to to um, build this this archive of women's contributions. And then this past year, just given, you know, the circumstances created by COVID, but also the, the room to kind of think about what our futures can be, she decided to reach out to more folks to kind of build a team so that we can, you know, fundraise and get this thing started. Um, and so basically this summer, she reached out to me and said, sis, I'm working on this project. Um, do you want to be a part of it? And I said, absolutely. This is incredible. And I, I couldn't believe when she was talking to me that it didn't exist. Like it felt, felt like such a necessary resource that it, it was wild to me that something like this hasn't existed already. So I was totally down. So what I've been doing is a lot of outreach work, basically reaching out to organizations and other interested individuals to kind of bring them in to support us right now directly through fundraising. But the hope is that we'll be able to do programs um, and offer courses and, and other kinds of educational and, and community-based um, projects and programs with folks. So I wanna do a lot of that outreach work. And um, I'm also just, you know, working with the team in terms of strategizing. I mean, all of us as, as black women do in organizing spaces, we're all wearing, you know, a million hats. We're all doing everything. Everybody's a graphic designer. Everybody is a strategist. Right. Everybody does branding. Everybody's doing social media. We're basically yeah. doing what we gotta do to bring this thing to life. 10 skills for one person, right? Everybody's doing That's 10 right. <laughs> That's okay. right. Okay. So go ahead, Pat. I'm sorry. So, you know, and you said she's been a cool, she's been working on this for two years. So just wondering, like, do you already have like interviews, like footage, write-ups? Is that like a bunch of stuff already ready to go? Or like what do you guys have in terms of work product? So she's already kind of worked through a few iterations of how this thing could could live. And in fact, it kind of started as a like a, a, a spreadsheet with just like, OK, well, let me try to map some of the like who every recorded work from, you know, a woman MC or woman in hip hop. And then it sort of expanded to like, well, this, you know, how can we create something that is more um, that offers or how she was thinking more in terms of how to capture that information um, mm -hmm. in different ways. So, you know, you could have a, a database, but you could also have a map 
right? Or you could have, there's, there's a variety of different ways that data can be um, presented. And so, you know, she's been, we've been working with a, a, a geospatial analyst who's at, at Harvard who could help to bring to life this mapping component of the, the database, but we still have a lot of research to do. We still have a lot of interviews to compile. We have a lot of work to do as far as getting all of the information that we need about, um, you know, not just the women that we know and love, but figuring out how to have conversations with women and, and girls who weren't necessarily as far in the, in the kind of mainstream. No, no. And can I say like, Obviously, when reading through the campaign, I loved it all. But that the and the the idea of that geospatially mapped artist timeline that you guys had, and I saw the examples uh, website you guys sent us to, like I loved it. So like Blake, the way I have it set up, yeah. imagine you're like on Google Maps. Yeah. But instead of locations, you click on it. It's the artist. So the cluster. Mm -hmm. This is Queens, and then you see all these different yeah. artists, different yeah. parts of that area, which I love as an idea because now it can. Visually, it can give you an idea of like, hey, there's a lot of activity going on over in this spot. Right. Oh, hey, look, there's a bunch of people here. Oh, wait, these people are like near each other. Like, right, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. It gives you an idea of the connections that that existed at that time. Exactly. And I'm so glad that you called attention to that, because I think that that's also something that can be lost to history. Right. That we. Um, we don't always know who was in conversation with other people. And we also don't always know, you know, how one of the, the fascinating and amazing aspects of studying hip hop history is like hip hop genealogy. Like how does this artist emerge at this time and where does this flow come from or why are they rapping in this way? And I think when you can oh, envision people geospatially, it's like, oh, it makes sense why this person, you know, this person was in conversation or at least kind of geographically in conversation with this other person at this time okay, so that's the thing that was happening. Like it helps to build a more, again, a fuller picture of women within hip hop and girls within hip hop, but more broadly, just hip hop as an art form, like how it moves, how it transforms. Yeah, like for us out here, I'm, 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 Patrick, I'm happy when you said that to me, I was like, people don't realize like out here in LA, you know, we know Lamert Park, right? So Lamert Park is kind of like a black central area, all this different black culture. And people don't realize in the early 90s, Snoop and, and Corrupt and Daz would come up to Lamert Park and freestyle and rap. Mm -hmm. Coming all the way from Long Beach, they would take whatever, 30 minutes north. But yeah. there's one place out here where before Kendrick, when he was still K-Dot, he'd be in the back rapping. Mm -hmm. And people don't understand how important mm -hmm. Lamert Park is to like the contribution right. to like modern hip hop where it's like, so when you put that genealogy, isn't it mm -hmm. interesting, famous when an artist um, builds a fan base and gets big enough, and this artist will say, oh no, I've known that artist for years because yeah. we in this place and, and freestyle in the back and talk about music. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's fascinating. It's a fascinating thing. And it's always, it's always really, it's a beautiful thing to know that the artists that you love kind of have had relationships with each other. I think that's part of why Twitter is so exciting to people because you get to see people in conversation you never even realized we're in conversation. You didn't even know we're friends or had connected with each other. Right. Um, so being able to see those relationships develop in real time is, I think, going to be really exciting. And I think um, for, for women in hip hop, like, it's so important because people don't, man, it's, it's like, I don't know, like, I'm a hip hop head, so I know rap. 
Like mm-hmm. I know these, the, like when he brought up DeBrat earlier, I was like, yo, people forget how dope, how nice DeBrat was. Oh, and yeah. Rappers DeBrat was writing for, for years, mm-hmm. right? But we ignored and we we're like, then when you have the one female artist that comes up, it's like, oh, she's the one. It's like, no, dog. There's like right. so many other, so many women have contributed to like to, to, to hip hop and how great it is, how global mm-hmm. it is. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I don't know. I just think it's very important that like we kind of like, like talk about this needs to be talked about on a, you know, on a massive. Sure. That's so, what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do is to, is to, you know, advance the conversation beyond like there can only be one and the one who exists has to embody this or has to embody that. Um, and I feel really hopeful about it. I think this is the moment for this project to exist, even though, you know, Aku and I, when we talk, we're always like, we've known these things as women who have, who have you know, been MCs in this space, but Pop culture, it takes a minute for folks to catch up. So I yeah. think that this will this will provide a necessary resource for people to really be able to to get up to speed. Okay. okay. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Pat. I'm sorry. Oh no, no, no. Um, and just wondering, like, as you got as as you both, uh, everybody involved with the project has been doing this, especially for a cool who's been doing this for two years. Has there been like any surprising challenges that y'all have encountered, like trying to make this thing happen? Um, so I kind of just jumped on the the project. So as far as like surprising challenges, I can't really speak to anything that's been, you know, like a, an impediment that I didn't think would exist. I, I will say, um, you know, that to me, it's frustrating that that we don't already have more support for something like this because I feel like it is so relevant to a lot of, I mean, every day there's a conversation about, uh, you know, different women in hip hop and and their relationships to each other or their kind of personal artistry. And so I think, you know, we're asking for a lot, not as much as nearly as much as we should. No, but... not at all. Not, not at all. <laughs> like, I mean, right. I, I, I saw the amount. I was just like, damn, that's it. Like, Right. Well, we're going to push for more. We're going to push for more. But that's a reflection of our understanding of who who sees the value in these projects. Right. That is frustrating that, um, you know, like you, you see the value in it and more people should because they're consumers of this art. And yet here we are, you know, online trying to get people to, to be invested in the project. So I think it's um, anytime you do fundraising for a project, it's always difficult. It's always like, you know, a, a struggle to have people recognize the value of the thing. But I think it's particularly frustrating when, you know, we're tweeting about the importance of this archive while people are tweeting about Meg and Cardi and tweeting about <laughs> No Name and tweeting, you know, it's like, wait, we're trying to do the work of of creating a space to have these conversations while y'all are having these conversations. Right, and, um, right, right. <laughs> so it can feel a little a little maddening in that way, but I know that we're we're gonna be be successful in this. And I know also that that this is just the first of many kind of efforts to engage people with this project. I yeah. think I think one thing that you're also doing with this project is um and I don't wanna I don't wanna disrespect like hip hop, but this is very responsible. This is responsible mm. work. You know, mm. when you see and it's not about any of these new artists. Or whatnot. Mm. Everybody wants to take the. They just want the the pleasure of hip hop and rap of like fame and fortune. But there's also a responsibility to being an artist. Mm. In rap. Rap has changed people's 
Um, right. Socioeconomic right. status is giving people opportunities. Like how many millionaires do we have off of like hip hop? How many people have been able to get off of drugs? How many people have been able to create generational wealth through hip hop? So it's mm-hmm. like what you guys are actually doing is is actually paying homage back to hip hop and mm-hmm. being responsible with this art form that has helped out so many people that has influenced the whole world. Mm-hmm. Like hip hop has influenced the whole world. You know, and the yeah. contribution of, of women in hip hop, it it's it cannot be taken lightly. So it's like it's gonna take a while for people to catch on, but when they do, they're gonna be like, oh, this is very important. Uh, one of the ways that we've talked about this project is in terms of stewardship, mm-hmm. in terms of being stewards to this this art form from which so many of us have found our voices or contributed or you know been connected. There's um, one of the the great um, books about hip hop and culture um, is is a, a book by um, Bakari Kitwana called The Hip Hop Generation, mm-hmm. and it engages with this idea that that for those you know, born at this point after 1965, that hip hop has so influenced our ways of being, our understanding for, for black folks, you know, our ways of being, our understandings of each other within this, this country and now within this world. Yeah. And it's, it, it's important work to be you know, documenting all of this and that you know, we don't take it lightly. We don't take it lightly, the work that we're doing in part because we are MCs within this tradition and we right. have seen, you know, how how difficult it can be when you're working within a form that often feels like it rejects you or doesn't prioritize or see you. And so this is our way of of I think acknowledging all of these women and girls and saying we see you and we acknowledge you and and hoping that the rest of the world will kind of do that same work. Yeah. yeah. I and think that was, go ahead, Pat. No, I was going to say, and overall, just and I've just been thinking about it. Obviously, just this whole week, think well, whole week, all last week, just thinking about you know coming up to this episode. Uh, another thing I would say with this project is it really shows the power of curation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a word you hear all that often, mm-hmm. but curation, like because a lot of stuff, whether it's the radio station, whether it's it's Billboard and their chart, all of that is just curation. Mm-hmm. You know, making a list. And you know the problem, you know, with the mainstream, these mainstream platforms and their list is who's making that list. What are their, what's their agenda? What's their goals with it? And now with mm-hmm. something like this, um, where you're, you're making this list, right? And it's you're making it public and accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Now it's and you're putting it in one place. Mm-hmm. So now it's like, all right, hey, you know, there's a bunch of women in hip hop. Well, no, here's a website that has all this information easily accessible. So now mm-hmm. you can find out very easily without you know, having to, you know, jump to this place and that place because the history is out there, but it's it's spread out. So it's really mm-hmm. dope what you guys are doing. Thank right. you. Yeah. And I appreciate, I think in terms of calling attention to curation, it's important to think about who who is doing the telling of the history, who's presenting the history, right? And yeah. that's, that's really important for us to think about. And so I think, um, yeah, we want this to be public and to be accessible and for, for us to kind of, you know, um, be to be kind of recognized as folks who are doing this work. Like we want to stand proudly in front of our community and be able to present this um, this project that, you know, I just, I'm very excited about all the places it can go because it, in some regards, it is about 
just allowing the public to kind of jump in and see, you know, at a glance even the contributions of women and girls. But I think there's another element where people, I hope people will get lost in the archive. People will go down rabbit holes and find out things that they never really knew existed or discover an artist who lived two blocks from them and be compelled to, to go to that space or build a community through that understanding. Right. I think it's very interesting when you find an artist that you like, I don't know, for me, like I'm a comedian, so if I find a comedian I love like throughout history and I find out, oh, they grew up here, I'll just start researching them. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I hope that's what's gonna happen with the with the archive. Like you'll find a rapper like, wait, she grew up in the corner? Wait, what? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Like I think of Lady of Rage. I had no idea she was from Virginia. She's from like Farmville mm-hmm. in Virginia and then moved to LA. And I was like, wait, she's from Virginia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So how did that influence her style? You know Right, right, exactly. And, thought process. I love that. I love that because it, it makes you ask different questions of the artist. Because, yeah. yeah, you know, I'm sorry, yeah. I wanted to, but remember both Thugs and Harmony? Yeah, of course. They sound like they're from out here, South Central, but they're from Ohio. They're from Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> they sound like a New York rapper. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Right? Mm-hmm. One state away from New York, especially in the, the, in the mid-90s. So you ask these questions like, what happened? Like, you know, what, who influenced them? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. But um, Pat, what's the, uh, Pat, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, that's cool. I mean, with that, I think we, you know, we've, we've gone through all the questions we have, you know, so uh, I think the next part, obviously, as usual, is the question and answer portion. But before yeah, we get to that, we got a little message from our sponsor. Got a sponsor. Uh, great, great sponsor. Yeah, so we'll be back. And then, yeah, you guys have your questions ready. Yeah. Hi, my name is so need to try to get a car, but you can't because you got bad credit. That's okay. No credit. That's all right. Just got your stimulus check. Don't spend it on that family. Come down to Modesto's Car Sales. That's right. Modesto's Car Sales. We'll take good care of you. Don't even have a job. That's all right. All we need is everything from you. Make sure you just sign here, here, and here. All right. And make sure you call 188-242-2431. That's 188-242-243. Make sure you come down to my desk's car sales and we'll take good care of you. Loso. Disclaimer, Modesto Auto Sales, as in no warranty. You will pay all costs for all repairs on this vehicle. This vehicle may not be roadworthy and is not presented as being roadworthy. You must check this vehicle by yourself or have a mechanic examine this vehicle for damage. Actually, fuck that. No use of a mechanic. Types of damage that may exist but not limited to may fail state inspection, may have flood damage, may have a cracked head or engine block damage, engine may be damaged or require placement, transmission may be damaged or require placement, differential may be damaged or require replacement, frame may be cracked, bent, or unsafe. Thank you for shopping at Modesto Auto Sales. Loso. Yep. Hey, look, whenever you're ready, after you do the, the archive, come get a car. I'll take good care of you. <laughs> okay, for sure. Reliable, reliable cars, people. Yeah, right, right, right. Get some from our sponsors so we can get some of that money. I mean, uh, so y'all can. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, good, good. So, yeah, let's go. Let's, hit, let's, let's go to these questions, Pat. For sure, for sure. People came out early. Okay, so we got one. This one is from Fit Body by Ashley. So, from your experience, do you feel female visibility and uh, in and credibility credibility in the rap industry has gotten better over the years, or is it about the same? That's a good question um, because I think that there's um, there's a lot of different elements to that. The first is visibility, and I think when we're talking in kind of clear terms about visibility, it really appears like wow, there's a lot more um, 
spaces, just in terms of outlets, festivals, um, and, and other areas where women MCs are being recognized. But in a lot of ways, it, it doesn't feel like there's been a huge kind of growth because the same kind of archetype is what predominates as kind of the, the, the imagery of women who can exist in rap, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a brilliant um, Kim Foster who runs the website for Harriet. She did a really brilliant analysis of, um, she talked about WAP, but she used it as a way to talk about um, what it means to be a black woman or you know a, a, a kind of black adjacent woman of color within hip hop spaces and the the kind of what empowerment looks like and um, how we can really engage with the complicated dynamics of one archetype being the one that prevails across all kind of media and the, the problems with that. Um, so it feels like, you know, for, from my experience, I'm excited to live in a moment where I can have a career as an MC, as a dark-skinned Black woman. Um, and I feel like, you know, it's definitely been challenging, but I've been able to connect with other women and other folks who appreciate my artistry because of sites like Bandcamp, because of SoundCloud, because, you know, of Twitter. They've created a space for, I think, a lot of women who wouldn't have had that visibility because they don't fit within a particular archetype, right. now they're able to connect with their people. And so that really excites me. But you know, I do think that my dream would be for women to be able to experience the diversity of different kinds of MCs mm -hmm. that you, know, you see represented in, in men within hip hop. But I, I also think that there's something to be said for, you know, the mainstream values certain things it, that like it's going to continue to reproduce certain things, capitalism being at the, the, the heart of that capitalism, you know, colorism, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that I, th I would love to see you know, a million women talking about the same old things. I, I don't want to replicate kind of the, the same systems of power being valorized, but I would love to see a diversity of women at a high level who have, whose artistry is, enabled, is able to power them or propel them. And they all can sound different. They're all talking about what they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. I think it's important as an artist, like just can, to those female artists that are coming up, just continue to remain true. You'll find, there's a huge fan base that is waiting for you. You'll find you 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 will find them and they will find you and they'll be so happy you stay true to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead, Pat. Sorry, when it's that next. Oh no, no, no. So I got another one now. This is from Akua. She, damn, she hitting us with these. Uh, damn, these. She's good. She's very good. <laughs> so the question is, how do you balance your identities as an MC and scholar? In what ways do you feel that your identity slash experience as a hip hop artist informs your scholarship? You like KRS One? Just, just power. No, she's on her own. She's on her own level. She's on her own level. She's, yeah. Um, so how do I balance um, my identities as an MC and a scholar? So for a long time, I, I kind of 
separated the two in my mind. So it was like I would go to class and and so my my degree is in science and technology studies. So I would go and learn about like history of science, history of technology. And then, you know, in my free time, I would write and I would perform and I wouldn't see those things as being in relationship to each other. But I think once I started to, once we started thinking about systems of power within the classes that I was taking, I started to realize that my emceeing, that my the things I was talking about in my music, I was I was discussing those same systems of power, but in my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like we would talk about you know racist histories of science, or or um, we would talk about sexism within tech spaces. And then I would go and think, oh, I, I kind of have talked about this or even, you know, racism and sexism within academia. <laughs> and then I would be taught writing songs about those same concepts. So it's been more recently that I've started to realize that there's a relationship between the two, that the things that I'm most activated by in my academic work are the things that I want to write about and speak about in my, my musical work as well. Um, and so I feel like as a, a hip hop artist, Performing has taught me how to teach. Um, <laughs> she asked me a question. <laughs> yeah, I thought too. <laughs> um, but it's taught me how to teach. Like I have a lot of stage fright when it comes to teaching. Like it's it can be scary to get up there as yeah to get up there as a teacher as a professor. Like it's you know everyone's kind of looking at you and they feel like you have to have the right answer and that's a lot. That's a lot of pressure and I think learning how to perform in front of an audience has taught me how to like develop and build my own sort of like intrinsic confidence. Cause we've, Aku and I have talked about this to get out there on the stage. It takes a special kind of passion and belief in yourself to be like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get up there and do this thing. And I'm going to, if there's a non-believer in the audience, I'm going to convert them into a believer. Like that's the, yeah. the kind of energy that you bring onto that stage. And so like perform doing that in a performance context has helped me in a classroom context to to show up a little bit more. Um, and my my favorite fruit is a mango. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, okay. So I got another one. This is more you know in a fun direction. So we're talking about obviously the erasure of uh, women MCs. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 this is not MCs. What I'm saying, because even I was doing it. Oh, hip hop culture, MCs. No, it's everybody, producers, B girls, whatever yeah. it is. So, yeah. Yeah. women in the culture, hip hop culture. So, mm-hmm. but with this one specifically, especially because there's a there's a versus going on tonight. So I now, know, I know. Can't wait for that. Yeah. So it's you, you know, Timbaland and and uh, who's that other dude? Why am I forgetting his name? Uh, what it's uh, what's his name? He's um. Swiss beats, yeah. I was like, I, I just remember the head, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they hit you up. They're like, Samus, all right, we want to do a versus battle this time, female MCs, female MC edition. Who do you have facing off? And it doesn't have to be one face off. You want to do more than one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who would be your versus battles? Oh gosh, yeah. I saw this question and I was like, I, I don't know. There's so many dope women, but from I feel like the women I'm thinking about have so many different styles. Like part of what makes verses so um, compelling is that they'll match people up stylistically and in terms of catalog. But the artists that I love are in so many different places. So like Missy Elliott, right? Mm-hmm. Lauren Hill, 
uh, Jean Grey, <laughs> you know, like our, how, how do we place them in proximity to each other in terms of the, the, the styles that they've. I would, I would say this, when they did the Snoop and DMX, there's not the same style, but I thought they found the common that they like dogs, right? Oh. <laughs> right, you know what I'm saying? Like they're <laughs> dogs. So like, I was like, they're not the same. They're not from the same region. You know? Right, right. I don't know. It's weird because when I, when I, when I, when we made that question, I kept thinking, I was like, I kept thinking Lauren Hill versus Erica Badu, even though, even though Erica Badu is not like technically. Oh, interesting. She always comes up as like a hip hop artist, which is interesting to me because I like, I firmly put her as like a, you know, neo soul yeah. singer, right. Right. A wizard, yeah. a sorceress. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I and I feel like that is probably something that's through the archive. It'll be interesting to map out just because how she finds herself in different spaces. Because yeah. she's contributed to hip hop. Erica Badu is like, yeah. like I don't know. Like I think she's. I look at her like, even though she doesn't technically rap, but she can because she does poetry. You know, you listen yeah. to her music. It's not like she can't rap. Yeah. You know who I, I would love to see? Be, when now thinking about singing and rapping. Maybe Missy and Lauren would be interesting because they both have beautiful voices and they're both like such dope. They're both very different stylistically, but I love that they um, that their catalogs trace singing and rapping and and they found ways to kind of engage both those sides of themselves. Like the complexity of their artistry isn't isn't um, limited by one form. Yeah, I pay for that. I know it's free, but I pay for that. Yeah. No, that would be incredible. I even it's funny because I even think like um do you have any other other like female I was and here's it's where I realized I should be ashamed of myself because I was thinking I was like, damn, everyone I thought of is the lazy one. And I don't I realize I do not listen to enough female MCs because the first one that came to my mind was, oh, you know, Queen Latifah and MC Light. Like, oh, mm -hmm. so you only listen to like two rappers? You're right, like, right, right. You think a little bit harder than that, Patrick. I was like, ah, <laughs> What what about like what about like Trina versus like Cardi B or something like that? Okay, there you go, there you go. I feel well. I also feel like part of it is you know one of the things that Akua has has uncovered is that Trina is prolific. Like she has written so 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 much, and so part of it is mapping. You know, part of what makes verses like dope to me is that you can see the histories of these artists, you know, like people will, will go do pull out these deep cuts and it's like, Oh my God, I forgot about this track. I feel like Cardi, you know, she hasn't been around long enough right. for us to, to kind of, I see the, the tradition or the legacies that she's part of, right. but I feel like, you know, maybe, uh, uh, like what's her name? Jackie O or, and Wait, Trina, they would be kind of oh, or, more matched. You know, or like tweak it or, you know what actually really we didn't really talk about this, but you know about what used to bother me about women in hip hop? There would be these little pockets where it'd be like, like you said, there would only be the archetype, and she, uh, mm -hmm. uh, it felt like a female rapper didn't have an opportunity to like grow, maybe not do well. You know what I'm saying? Because every artist has had a bad album. I don't care who yeah. you, are, you know what I'm saying, right? Because remember Shauna, mm -hmm. like Shauna, yeah, was, yeah, yeah, she would rap though. But I was like, what happened to Shauna? And then um, Emil or Rockefeller, she was dope. What happened? Like. Like a, a female artist rapper, she's not allowed to like, mm -hmm. like grow when every mm -hmm. other artist, you know, actors put out bad movies. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think that, that one of the, again, another important innovation of this um, archival project is just that, 
you know, there are women who are on these labels who exist alongside some of our kind of the, the male MCs that we know and recognize. And part of like what's important about this work is showing that there were actual systemic barriers to oh. women advancing in their respective art forms. And I think, like you said, like the fact of you can't, you got to keep bringing in, like this is the, the way that the, the music industry functions more broadly. But as a woman, there's a particular oh. constraint around your ability to experiment or your ability to, to, to fail or flop. And, um, you know, artistry goes hand in hand with, with failure. You're trying right. new things, you're creating, you're trying to innovate. There's always the possibility, always the chance that it won't land. And so there's a lot of pressure when you know that you're working not only within this hyper-capitalist music industry space, but also, you know, if I fail, then it's, it's sh the door shuts for me and potentially for other women artists behind me. Like the labels right. are going to be invested in women's artistry, period. Right, no, right. And you know, when you brought up Jackie O, remember, it was, wasn't it Jackie O versus Latrina or something like that? And it's mm -hmm. like, when it didn't catch enough buzz, Jackie yeah. O was just, she just, she doesn't exist anymore. I was like, how does, yeah. how do you it's like- It's frustrating. It's yeah. very frustrating that, yeah, that there's, there's not, I mean, we talk about this in, in, in film as well with like black directors and black women directors that we're not, they're not able to fail. Like we are not able to, you know, fail in quotes, which just means not, meet a certain quota, um, but that's, it's it's terrifying as an artist to feel like you have that kind of pressure around your artistry. It's amazing because, you know, we, I keep bringing up Cardi B, but Cardi B came out not, she didn't come in the traditional way, she's reality spoke. Like, so she mm -hmm. didn't have that reality, like, and they have that fan base, she probably doesn't mm -hmm. go the traditional route of like, going through a record label, it's like, hey, I can rap. She had to mm -hmm. go through reality TV, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, and it's very much, I'm sure, has influenced how, um, you know, record labels look at artists, that they expect artists to already have a following or already have a presence before they invest in them. And that can be really challenging because then, again, where's the innovation? Where's the space for innovation if you're only selecting artists who already have done the work of being visible? So it, it's just, it's really challenging, I think, for for up and coming artists who want to have a particular level of visibility, but aren't doing things, are, are, are doing weird music or making things that's different or outside the box or that, that doesn't um, replicate the same kind of archetype. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah what's the next question? Hey, before you put that, I, was, I want to put a little tweak on it. I mean, it's easier, the lazy yeah. one. Trina versus Little Kim would seem like the most obvious matchup to that's me. Tired, I, feel like. I know it's it's lazy, but it's like you can't think anybody else, you know. Who? Trina and Little Kim. Oh, well, Foxy Brown versus Little Kim. You know, I, feel like, uh, I haven't uh, heard a lot of Foxy. Is her how big is her catalog? I mean, she doesn't have a big catalog because remember she had the ear infection and stuff like that, and she like got away. From a lot her. of challenges that she was dealing with, but yeah. you know, but her. I don't know. I was listening to El Nana the other day, just as I was working, and. Um, it's, yeah, it's just she's, she's like she's six foot two. She has like the, the, the toughest female voice. Like she's she's incredible. Have you heard the new Nas album? I haven't yet. It's on my list. Don't worry. Oh, wait till you get to the song with the fur with Foxy Brown. It's like she didn't miss. The I beat. know who has been. She 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 sent me. She was like, "Yo, listen to this. Listen to this." And I'm I'm making time. It's just you know the school oh. year starting. I'm like, all yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna be listening to it. 
gosh, man, I'm. It's funny now. You you like you heightened all these ones. Scarlett O'Hara. She was supposed to be a female on like from the from in New York, but it's. It's it's very. Ch- I didn't know. I it's not like I didn't know, but I didn't recognize how challenging it was for a female MC. Mm-hmm. They'll have these little pockets. I'm like, oh, she's gonna come out. Where is she? Mm-hmm. You said she has one song. It doesn't do as well. Olivia. Right. Yeah. There's, There's so lot. many pressures. There's so many pressures for a lot of these women. So yeah. I'm just excited about this project to be able to highlight those stories and to. To be in conversation with these women who, um, you know, who I'm sure many of them have have found other creative projects or have been doing their thing. You know, there's there's not I, I what I don't want to have happen is for this to um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm you not- know. I'm seeing seeing a coolest comment. Look, I, look, I, look, I didn't listen to a lot of Foxy Brown. This, I was asking a question. I wasn't being disrespectful. Foxy's <laughs> fire. Always. Always, she's genius. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just really excited for for all of the work that this project is going to uncover. Like, I think it'll be illuminating, just in the context of this conversation. You know, it's it's for you. You're suddenly thinking, oh wait, what about this artist? What happened to this artist? Like, having a space where we can really like dive into their stories, I think, will be critical. Pat, is there? Um, uh, do we have another question from uh, Akua? Oh, we do. Um, but I want to ask another question in the reverse. So Kua asks about how uh, your uh, how your you know music affects you know your work as a scholar. So now, hold on, just have the question right in front of me. Give me a moment. Sorry, I love. <laughs> Give me a moment. Okay. No worries. So here it is. So yeah. So how has? Oh wait, no, wrong one. Sorry. Sorry, I could have. Yeah, I had it like a second ago. I don't know why. It's tripping. But yeah, but essentially, yeah. So how has your work as a scholar affected your work as an MC? Mm. How has my work as a scholar affected my work as an MC? Mm. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think that, okay, so as a scholar, one of the, you know, I had to write a lot of papers, <laughs> um, which sharpened my relationship to language. Um, like, I think I being really, really precise, because one of the things, excuse me, that I had come to detest about being in academia was reading these texts that were um, so dense for the sake of being dense. So they were be, they were they were written in a way so as to obscure people from accessing them. And I think it doesn't mean, you know, I don't have anything against people um, writing intelligently about something that they love, right? And it can end up feeling a little bit impenetrable if you don't know the language. But I would often run into these texts that just felt like they were that way for the sake of being that way, that it was a part of like the, um, part of the academy is keeping people out, (laughs) Is, is, is intentionally writing things in a way so as to be inaccessible and um, I think seeing that made me desire to be more intentional with my own language because I felt like I would write papers that would be in that style. And I had to check myself and say, like, I, what am I doing here? Like, why am I emulating this this way of speaking or why am I mm-hmm. like thinking that that's the best way to present my my knowledge? And so being more attuned to language, I think, has helped me as an MC and just really sitting and waiting until I have the right word and not being lazy and not just saying, OK, well, I'll just, 
you know, the, the few scholars who are going to read this, they'll understand it. And like, no, what would it mean to frame this work in a way that it could be accessible to other folks? Or what 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 word, do I, what's the perfect word for this thing that I'm trying to describe that makes sense here? Um, so it's definitely made me more aware of um, the power of words and the power of language and um, made me want to create work that, um, yeah, work that's accessible in different ways to the communities that I care the most about, basically. Okay. And this one, there's a follow-up to that, uh, specifically that the way scholarly writing can be really dense and sometimes a little overly wordy. Just yeah. wondering, in the academy, because I've heard, you know, in interviews, different scholars kind of talk to that, but is there any movement to try to change that or fix that? Because, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll try to read some scholarly stuff, because there's some great ideas. There's some great conversations going on in the academy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can see as I'm reading this stuff, like, okay, damn, if for someone who, you know, education past a certain point, they wouldn't get this. I got to read this with a thesaurus or a dictionary. I'm finding myself looking at it with a dictionary. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's some like really great high level conversations that would be great to have on the ground level for everybody else. But I guess, is there any movements or discussions that you know of where people are like, look, can we stop speaking all this scholarly gobbledygook and like this, like speaking like plain English? Is I, mean, I think there's a, a lot of individual scholars who are invested in that project. There's a, a blog that I, it's like a, a scholarly blog that I really appreciate called Sounding Out. And it um, features writing from junior scholars, senior scholars, um, and, and folks outside of the academy. And, you know, one of the guidelines for writing for this publication is that you have to think about a broader audience that it has to be written in a style that engages with a broader audience. So I think that there are folks who, um, you know, it's not a particular movement per se, but I think that there are scholars whose part of their work or part of their project is in making their work accessible to others. And I think another, an offshoot of that is the growth of like book clubs and, and other kind of informal organizing around making this language accessible. So I know No Name, speaking of amazing women in, in hip hop, she, um, she has a book club where, you know, they're reading radical texts and thinking deeply about, um, you know, black liberation movements and, and other, other kinds of things that might have seemed inaccessible outside of that context. So, you know, there's definitely ways to, to penetrate and, um, to be a part of these conversations, but it's it's definitely a matter of finding the right scholars and, and being plugged into what they're doing. Okay. All right, next question, another one from Akua. So what are some of the personal joys you experienced through working on the Keepers and the archival project, et cetera? So it's been a joy first and foremost to build the community that I'm a part of. So the Keepers is a black women led collective. Um, and we are we are kind of the full range of different kinds of folks. So there's artists, there's scholars, there's, um, you know, marketing heads, there's, um, you know, people who are, 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 there's dancers, singers, et cetera, et cetera, um, researchers. And it's been really beautiful to connect with all of these these women, especially at this moment, like the, the pandemic and the kind of uh, Black Lives Matter uprisings over the summer in combination had left me completely drained. And <clears throat> just as an artist, I felt depleted. Like, I, you know, I missed my community. I missed going to shows. I missed 
um, all of the things that come with being a, a traveling, touring musician. Um, and so I feel like through organizing this project, I've been able to build that community that I was missing um, over the past few months. Like we really hold each other and, it's, and, and help each other. And we have the organizing work that we're doing, but we're also there for each other as friends. And that feels really beautiful to me. So that's, to me, that's a personal joy that I've experienced. But um, also, you know, as I've been talking about, I think seeing myself in this great hip hop tradition has been really gratifying. Um, that like recognizing that this project will allow me to see other women and girls who have done this kind of work. Like there's a, a, a thread that I've been really invested in tracing out is other women MCs who have engaged with geek and nerd culture. Um, and I wanna see other, other women who have done that kind of work. There's, there's Jean Grey, we talked about Missy Elliott, mm -hmm. um, but I feel like there's, there's so much more to kind of reflect and uncover. So I'm, I'm excited about that, that part of it on a personal level. Oh, oh, okay. Um, so the next one, so, and you've started already naming some, but recommended books on hip hop history and you've already like started naming some, yeah. but are there any others you'd recommend? I mean, I would go back to um, Rap Music and Street Consciousness by Cheryl Keys it's I, because it's so, um, let me see if I can, can find it on my, I have a, a big chunk of books <laughs> um, that it's just such a great work because it traces all of these different threads um, that I think is really important for, for understanding hip hop more holistically. Um, like she goes all the way to, to West African traditions and, and musical forums and then and then brings it forward um, and, and across time and space. So I think that's really powerful. Um, there's a book called uh, Race Music, Black Cultures from Bebop to Hip Hop by Guthrie Ramsey. He's a professor at UPenn. Um, and he does a really interesting, he like traces out his personal history as a, as a musician to make bigger connections with how hip hop has emerged um, through kind of um, other black cultural forms of music. Um, obviously Black Noise by Trisha Rose is, is an important, is a, is a must read text um, on- and she's an advisor on, on, the, hip -hop. on The Keeper, right? Yes, she's an advisor. She's a brilliant professor. I mean, there's so many things that can be said about the impact that she has had on our understanding, our socio-cultural understanding of hip hop. So definitely um, both that and um, hip hop wars. And I would also put in there again, Bakari Kitwana, the hip hop generation. Um, the subtext is the uh, young blacks and the crisis in African-American culture. It does a really great job of tracing out how um, some of the broader like sociocultural shifts that have happened over the past 30, 40 years are can be tied into relation to hip hop iconography, um, music, how it shows up in film. Um, so those are some some texts that I would start with. Okay, okay. And if I could recommend one, um, this is one I actually read. I know there were some ones I kind of did some research on maybe to have, but a uh, hip hop family tree. I don't know, have you ever read it or heard about it? I've seen it. I haven't. I haven't read it yet, though. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know the guy's background. Ed Pisker is the, is the author, mm -hmm. and I don't know his background, artist, or anything like that. But what essentially he does is he creates. It's a. It's a bunch of books. It's a bunch of volumes, at least three mm -hmm. or four, and mm -hmm. it's a history of hip hop, going all the way back to like the beginning mm -hmm. in the seventies in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. um, 
does is it's it's kind of interesting because he makes it like a big comic book, these huge splash pages comic books going through mm -hmm. the hip hop history. So it's like an encyclopedia mixed mm -hmm. with a comic book in a way. So it's almost like the book as you're reading it, because he, you know, he'll like you can tell he did his research in it. So as you're reading it, one of the things for sure that'll happen, you're like, okay, well, let me go research this. Because he'll reference all kinds of stuff, you know, big stuff. He'll also reference reference some of the maybe the, some of the tall tales, some mm -hmm. of the myths, you know, like hey, this is what it was said. Who knows if it happened or not? But yeah. story, you know, according to legend, this is what happened. So it's a pretty good book, I would say, if you can get your hands on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, next one, next question. Uh, we had to ask it. So, look, other than Beyonce, who's your like dream collab? Um, so I've kind of have had my my dream collab because I have a song. I mentioned I have a song with Jean Grey, which is um, to me the greatest honor um, that I could possibly. <laughs> I think as an artist, it's like to be able to work with somebody who has shaped that path for you. That's really incredible. Um, but outside of her, I really love Tierra Wack. She's so brilliant. She is such a brilliant MC. Like, not just a brilliant MC, but she's a really innovative songwriter. Like, she, um, in, in thinking about verses, like the the traditions, mm -hmm. I would definitely say that she, to me, emerges out of a kind of Missy Elliott like experimental. Um, space because she just is she plays with the form so effortlessly and then she but she really be spitting like she's just so precise with her um with her MCing. so I think I would love to to just be in a in a studio space with her and see how she thinks how does she think about music how does she think about a song uh, I think that would be dope and I apologize, I'm I'm losing my voice because I've been talking today. So I'm able to, to talk for too much. <laughs> oh no, do you think? Do you think? Um look at this we, last this next one, Patrick, with the uh, Oh yeah, yeah, that one. So we asked you about the verses, but now just top five female MCs. Any oh, uh, that's a that's a complicated question. <laughs> um, there's so many women who have just um to me like that I'm obsessed with. So I don't know. I I, I want to give love, I think, first to Akua Naru. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen her perform, but if you haven't, um, I saw like a little, I was able to see her perform briefly um, through, and there's clips of her online, obviously, but um, she, her, you can just see the love, her love of the form coming through in her performance. Like it just inspires me to want to do better, to want to like get on the stage again. So I absolutely have insane amounts of love for her. Um, and yeah, I feel like the other women that I might name in this, it's, it's always, it's hard because it's like, how can you, right. how can you whittle this down? I know that this is, I when I taught a, a hip hop, songwriting class, you know, I said, the students all wanted like top five, top five, top five. And I was like, you know, for me, it's more of like a top five on which day in which stage of your life, you know, right. it shifts. It's not, I feel like what you need at a particular moment is yeah. not what you'll need in the next moment. Yeah, really um, subjective. yeah, it depends. Right. So right now I would say, I love Tierra Wack. I always love Jean Grey. I love Akua Naru. I love Lauren Hill. I love Missy Elliott. Um, I love 
uh, Chelsea Reject. She's a, a NMC that I know from, um, I think she's from Cleveland. Um, I love Latasha Alcindor. And an, a rapper that I feel like often gets left out of conversations is Azalea Banks. I think she is incredible. She, I love how she raps. I love, I love her voice and I love how she raps. Like she is doing something really interesting. And because she's dealing with, you know, mental health issues and the pressures of the industry, I feel like she hasn't been able to um, be received in the way that she might have in another moment, another space and time. But I absolutely adore Azalea Banks bars. Like she, I just love the way that she comes on the track. It's funny, I forgot about her, but man, I forgot she's about a, her. She's a brilliant artist. She's a brilliant artist. There was like there was like a weird moment where people were just giving her a bunch of like, like there's a bunch of crap. I don't know why. She, I mean, she it's, had her moments of things and comments that weren't, but oh, she's dealing with stuff clearly. It's, uh, oh, oh, okay, okay. I see right, she's definitely dealing with a lot. And I think, again, when we think about sexism in this industry, like, there's something to be said for how folks are engaging with Kanye and how folks yeah. are engaging with Azalea Banks. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, this idea that that there was immediate empathy for what he's going through, but she was kind of left left for dead, really. You know, that that that's a reflection of where we're at in this industry, not just in relation to, to mental health, but in relation to to like gender disparities. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, it's funny you say that. And obviously you can't, I don't want to put you in no, you in the industry. I don't wanna, but I could just because you have that. You know, I'm seeing your interviews. You have that love of Kanye, and I, at that age, when I first heard I Kanye, I connected. It. <laughs> you know? and that was just like, oh my god, he's speaking to my experience, middle class Negro. Oh my god, finally, somebody, <laughs> it's my anthem. And now I'm just like, oh god, this, what is he doing? Like, oh man, you're making it hard, fam. Figure it it's out. But... It's disappointing, but it it um. Yeah, it's definitely been disappointing for me as a as someone who started producing because of him to kind of watch that. But you know, it it, it is what it is. We, we we move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you guys go to go to that next. I mean, I kind of have a top five team on C, but. Hey, no, throw it out there. Let's see. I gotta go soon. I gotta go soon. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last question, and we'll bring it back to the campaign just for people who are interested about the goodies. So, like, what's your favorite perk uh, in the campaign or perks? Oh, my favorite perk. Um, I think at the the $250 level, you'll have access to a course, a series of courses that's being taught. called uh, The Keepers Playing for Keeps. And, you know, I'll be teaching a class and Kuanara will be, be leading a course. And basically um, these will be on songwriting and on, uh, we have ZZ Packer, who's a, a brilliant writer, um, Kira Gaunt, who wrote the games Black Girls Play. So I'm just really excited about that, that aspect of this, to lead um, kind of seminars and discussions about this work from the people who are doing the work. Um, so at the $250 level, you'll have access to that as well as merch, like gear and um, and a ticket to, we're gonna have an opening night when the, the, the um, archive is completed, which, you know, at this stage, it's looking like it will be a virtual opening night. <laughs> right. um, but you'll have access to performances and, and um, other conversations that are centered around this exact topic. Okay, go, go, go. Um, 
with that, I think that was the last question. Right. And now we have, you know, the question. Well, I'll go ahead, Blake. I'll let you do your thing. Uh, what you call it? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't be disrespectful or be, um, you know, culturally inappropriate. We always ask a guest this last question. Uh, if you could describe yourself as any animal, what would you pick and why? Um, you know, and not it's not no evil spirituality. I just like animals. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. If I could describe myself as any animal, oh wow. You know, I had time to think about this and I just, <laughs> I, I feel like just to take it back to the beginning, mm -hmm. I would be a hedgehog because of Sonic. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. What, <laughs> because I, and I know that hedgehogs aren't actually fast like that. I don't, I don't even know how he, how the title of hedgehog was associated with him and with speed. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but they are, they're very, they're protected. You know, they can protect themselves. They're very cute. Um, and yeah, I think that the, the greatest video, one of the greatest video game characters of all time is a hedgehog. So why not? <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Um, where can, um, first of all, thanks, Samus, for being on the podcast with us. Thank We're sorry for um, too much of your time, but it's very, okay. very interesting. It's, it's so fun talking to you, honestly. yeah. Funny. I wish we could do a part two of music because there's a lot of stuff in rap we can like I want to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. um, where can people find you, uh, follow you, or even um, look forward to uh, your archive? And uh, yeah, so head, head to um, followthekeepers.com um, and that will oh the link is just is posted perfect. So the Indiegogo is right on there. You can click and find and be able to support in that way. Um, and then my, and we're on Instagram as well. Follow the keepers, Twitter, uh, we, the keepers. And then with my own personal stuff, it's the Samus music everywhere. S A M M U S music, um, on Twitter, Instagram. Um, and yeah, let me know, support the project. Let us know if you're supporting the project. We would love to shout you out. And we're so, so excited for this thing to come into being. We appreciate having the platform to talk about it. No, excellent. Excellent. And, um, uh, Pat, where can people follow you, brother? Uh, so you can follow me at Congolese.YouTubers and African.YouTubers on uh, Instagram. On uh, Twitter, it's Congo YouTubers. We promote African culture, Congolese culture, the diaspora, the whole the whole thing, the whole thing. Check Excellent. me out. Excellent. You can follow me, Blake Ozizawisa Jr. on Instagram. Uh, follow my other podcast, look for the podcast. Um, and yeah, anything about us, just follow us through uh, Bantu Boys. Like, share, and subscribe. Uh, comment, please. We're on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube. Um, this will be up on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts tomorrow. So, like I said, same as off the camera. Um, so, um, we're going to tag you and Bob you. So, yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And we appreciate it. And we look forward to your, your journey. Thanks so much. Bye, y'all. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, right. See you guys next week. Thank you. Ha <laughs> ha